this evening is from John chapter 4, verses 43 to 54, page 1068 in your pew Bible. Jesus heals the official's son. After the two days he left for Galilee, now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, for they also had been there. Once more he visited Gana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus replied, You may go. Your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, The fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and all his household believed. This was the second miraculous sign that Jesus performed, having come from Judea to Galilee. Amen. Thank you, Heather. Bless you, Heather. This, uh, this is an amazing little incident, isn't it? I love I love this incident, I really do. And the first thing I think that might be helpful for us to do is just walk through this passage together. So if you've got a Bible or a Bible app or whatever, why don't you open it? There's a pew Bible at the end of your pew. Let's open up the Word. Let's look through this together here in John chapter 4. Because I think we need to just explain a couple of things. Because there's a couple of strange things going on in this passage, actually. I mean, start off, look at verse 43. Jesus had just spent two days in Samaria, and he's now leaving for Galilee. Now, the time in Samaria had been spectacularly successful. His ministry there had been really, really blessed. If you glance back to John chapter 4, you'll see, for instance, that it appears the whole town of Sychar was turning to Jesus, believing in him. An amazing thing was happening there. And the intriguing thing about his time there was that their focus, and it's important we see this, wasn't so much on Jesus the miracle performer, it was really on what he had said. That's what had captivated them. You notice there in verse 42, we have heard him for ourselves... And we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. John chapter 4, 
verse 42. So it wasn't, and underline that, it wasn't that Jesus had turned water into wine or healed somebody or raised somebody from the dead. It was what he was saying that captivated them. And as a result of what he was saying, they came to faith. It's a way better response uh, than anything Jesus had, Jesus had ever gotten amongst his own people. So what's strange about that? Well, what's strange is he leaves that area. That's strange, isn't it? He leaves there for Galilee. Galilee, uh, you probably know it's where Jesus grew up, in Nazareth. Uh, it's a simple Bible map there, but it's probably one at the back of the Bible you, you may be reading now. About 10 miles north, north of Nazareth is Cana, which we heard uh, in that story that Heather just read for us. Uh, Cana is where Jesus turned the water into wine, uh, back in chapter 2. 15 miles east from Cana, you've got Capernaum, where the official with the sixth son in the story lives. So Galilee is Jesus's hood. It's his home. This is a region he knows in a special sense. And he's leaving Samaria which isn't his home, it's hostile territory, not a place that Jews like to go, and he's turning to his own stomping ground, familiar territory, to the very place where people will not receive him. Strange. So what's going on here? Well, you notice that verse 44 begins with that word, now. And that means that there's this verse is acting, if you like, as a bit of a reason uh, as to why Jesus is going to Galilee. And uh, we see that after the two days he left for Galilee, now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. That's interesting. Jesus had pointed that out. What I take John to be saying here is that Jesus very deliberately goes to a place where he is less honoured than he's just been. He's not after fame or adulation. He's going to go to a place where he is not really that welcome. He's coming home. He's going to his own people, but he does that knowing that actually they didn't get it. They didn't understand him, much less honor him for who he was. Wouldn't that be a terrible thing to think? Can you imagine having been away for a long time and you're getting ready to come home? I mean, home, that's the place where you would expect a special welcome. That's a place where people would, ah, oh, great to see you. But Jesus is going back home knowing they just don't get him they don't understand he's not going to be honored there it's not new of course back in john chapter one if you want to flip back he came to his own verse 11 and his own people did not receive him so the premise of verse 44 seems a bit strange go to a place because they'll probably misunderstand you and reject you yeah, tough man. But it wasn't strange to Jesus. Indeed, it was the plan from the very beginning. 
And he intends to keep offering himself to his own people. And yet overall, overall, his own people will not receive him. In fact, in the end, it's going to get him killed. Which is why he came. So this is part of a much bigger picture. Do you see it? The rejection that he is anticipating, the rejection that he's already received earlier in John's Gospel, it's all part of an ongoing, unfolding plan for Jesus' mission and purpose. The second thing that's strange here that needs explaining is the way verse 44 connects with what follows. He goes to Galilee, he goes to his own people because... Well, he expects no honor there, okay? And then verse 45 tells us that when he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Now, I don't know, that's strange to my eyes, okay? So he's already saying, I'm going to go somewhere where they're not going to honor me. And he gets there, and the bunting's out. And, you know, some people look at this and they say, see, Bible's inconsistent. How, how can Jesus say things like, well, a prophet is without honor in his own town? And yet here they are. Way! Jesus! They welcome him. Now, that isn't what we were expecting. They're supposed to dishonor him, aren't they? That's what they're supposed to do, verse 44. So how can John say a prophet has no honor in his own town? Therefore, they welcomed him. How do, you, how do you marry that? Well, the answer is, I think, in the welcome. Because what it looks like on the outside is very different from what's going on on the inside. You've done that, haven't you? You've been at a party or a social gathering and somebody comes in and everybody's making a huge fuss of them. Lovely to see you. How are you? And inside you're going, I really don't like you. You've done it, haven't you? I know you have. You know, it's, it's about the welcome. It's about what's the motive here? What's really going on? It's almost as if John wants us to understand that when they say they welcomed Jesus, it's like, all right, no sense of you're the son of God. You're the saviour of the world. You're the Prince of Peace. No, no, no sense of who he actually is. Again, it's not new in John, is it? We've seen it before. You remember John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25? While he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. They believed, John says, but it wasn't the kind of faith Jesus accepted. He knew they were shallow. It was simply an excitement with his miracles. Oh, Jesus! Lovely! Oh! Weren't interested in who he actually was. Weren't interested in the beauty and glory and majesty of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the Messiah, the Saviour of the world. 
Another illustration of that kind of superficial welcoming or receiving of Jesus. It's a false faith, really, isn't it? It's what we're talking about. Another great illustration of that is the way that Jesus' own family respond to him. Do you remember what his brothers were like? Do you remember that amazing little incident in John chapter 7 that Jesus' brothers said to him, Well, this is the PR man now. Leave Galilee, mate. Go to Judea. Your disciples there may see the works you do. Bigger stage. ITV, you've got a hub there. Get on the news. Everything will be happening. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to him. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. What a cutting thing for John to put in there. They believed he could do miracles. And they were eager for him to showcase these miracles to the world. But John says, truth be told, his brothers did not believe in him. He comes to his own, his own brothers. They didn't receive him. Oh, they think they are, just like the people in Galilee think they're welcoming him. They don't understand him. They don't have eyes to see. And so they don't honor him, even though they make a huge fuss of this miracle worker. That's exactly what we're seeing here, isn't it, in John 4. They welcomed him, but it was purely because they'd seen all that he'd done in Jerusalem at the feast, because they'd been there as well, John reminds us. They welcomed him because they'd seen works of power in Jerusalem. And so Jesus is coming to these people knowing this is their attitude. And then we read this, verses 46 to 48. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine, and there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, he'll never believe. So Jesus is addressing this very point. You just want signs and wonders. You, you just want miracles. And notice in that passage, Jesus doesn't just talk to the guy. He's deliberately talking to the crowd. He's addressing the whole crowd, the whole region of his hometown. And he says explicitly what we've been arguing. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you'll never believe. Miracle seekers. Jesus is a performing monkey. Come on, Jesus, come on, Jesus, you can do it. Dance, Jesus, dance. There to entertain. And there's a lot of people who see Jesus like that today. Truth. Let's just get it out there. A lot of people. Wonder worshippers. You say you believe. But your belief, like those folks in Jerusalem in John chapter 2, and like his brothers in John chapter 7, isn't real belief that honors him. In fact, it dishonors him. And Jesus knows that. Jesus susses that. And what about this official? He's interesting, isn't he? What's it, which camp was he in then? Did he get it? Is that why he sought out Jesus? Did he really understand? You're the man. Or was he coming to Jesus saying, come on, do something for me, something for me? 
lover of Jesus' power, but not a lover of Jesus the person. I think the interchange between the official and Jesus is amazing. I think we see a side of Jesus here, which is brilliant. I think he's testing him. I think Jesus is testing the official. The official's asking for a miracle for his dying son in a context, remember, where people love to see miracles. Come on, Jesus, come on. And he seems to be asking for the same reason any unbelieving person would love to see a miracle. Let's be honest about it. I have a health need. Fix it, Jesus. Not coming and saying, I have a sin. Forgive me and give me power to live for you. See, that's, that's the reality. Unbelievers don't love God. They use God. I think we need to check our own motives tonight. Did you love God or are you just using him? Are you in the camp that says, come on, perform, come on. Or do you get it? Do you get who he is? Do you really understand the beauty and the majesty of Christ? Jesus bluntly says to the guy, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. As I said, I think it's a test. It's a bit like, do you remember the incident with the Syrophoenician woman? She pleaded for help with her daughter. And Jesus, at first, rebuffed her. If you go to Mark 7, you'll see it turned out to be a test. So it's interesting. How does the official respond to Jesus' rebuff? Jesus, the guy has come to Jesus, kids dying, 15 miles away. Come with me, come with me, please. Jesus turns around and says, flip me, unless you, because that's what it says in the original Greek, right? Unless you people, you can see him, can't you? He's not standing. Unless you people see signs and wonders. I, I think Jesus is irritated, don't you? I think he is. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you'll never believe. How does he react to that? Look at the text. He doesn't even comment on it. He repeats his request. Verse 49. Sir, come down before my child dies. And neither John nor Jesus makes any other comment. Jesus doesn't say anything to the guy. John doesn't add an editorial note as he's writing. No, no. And Jesus... Fascinating. Fascinating. Jesus is just... The guy repeats his uh, question. And Jesus... Turns around and says that. Go. Your son will live. Go. Your son will live. And I love what John says next. Because the hairs on the back of my neck standing up this bit. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. Go. Your son will live. Cheers, Paul. Off he went. How amazing is that? What's remarkable about this is that the man had asked Jesus to come with him. And yet, Jesus says to the guy, go, your son will come. And the man is like, yeah, all right. He just takes Jesus at his word. 
he believed him and he, he went. He didn't insist on seeing the miracle. He didn't complain that Jesus wouldn't come with him. Oh, come on, you've got to come with me. No, 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 no. Amazingly, he just, he left. And notice, John says he departed taking Jesus at his word. When's the last time you did that? He just took him at his word. Wow. What happened? What happened in that moment? Did the guy get some sort of supernatural revelation? Was there something in the way Jesus said, go, your son will be well? Did a light bulb switch on in the guy's head? Was there a supernatural encounter in this guy's heart that suddenly he went, whoa. Remember when they came to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? They came with their clubs and with their swords. And Jesus approached them and they whoa, had to stand back. Because in that moment, the glory of Jesus shone. I think something similar is happening here. The guy had begged Jesus, come with me, come with me. Jesus rebuffs him. Yes, you will not see miracles. He turns to the man and he says, go, the son will be well. All right, come on. I'm inclined to think in that moment, he hears Jesus speaking so sovereignly, something awakens in this guy. He sees something more just than just a miracle worker. I think something of the glory of Christ is revealed. The next day, we get the confirmation that the healing had taken place at the very hour when Jesus had spoken the day before. And the confirmation, the confirmation is awesome. The confirmation reestablishes the guy's faith and his whole household comes to faith. Wow. How awesome is that? Look at verses 51 to 53. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that the boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. I bet they did. Was this guy's faith the mere miracle-seeking kind? Doesn't seem to me like it was. It seems to me he passed the test. Oh, by the way, I should have said this earlier. It's interesting. Who is this guy? Ever thought about that? Let me be a bit careful you don't assume things, but he's deliberately described in this passage, depending on the translation that you have, he's an official the, the royal uh, official, actually, the Greek is, is quite clear that he's literally the royal one. It means that he is connected to the king in, in, in some way. Now, now, you might be saying, well, why are you pointing this out? I'm pointing this out to you because who's the king? The king of this region is a guy called Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas was a distinctly wicked, evil, nasty piece of work. You may remember he's the guy who chopped off John the Baptist's head. 
Interesting. Very interesting. This is a fantastic comment, actually, because John is showing us that this man, this official, connected to a terrible, horrible, wicked king, this man believed properly. He didn't come to Jesus saying, perform for me, come on, do something. No, no, in a moment, there is something that takes place in this guy's heart where the glory of Christ is seen. He's like the Samaritans in Sicca that just got it. They understood something about Jesus. He's not like the folk in Galilee who will dishonor Jesus, even though they're his own people. This man has proper faith. It's a lovely reminder, isn't it, that whatever your past, whatever your connections, you are you. And Christ can take you right now tonight to be his precious child. Whatever has gone on, whatever's happened, doesn't matter. Or that the glory of Jesus would be seen in Mariah tonight. Or that the glory of Christ would be evidence in this place. Please, please, Lord. Isn't that precious, that prayer time we had at the start? Did you not sense a move of God here? Please tell me you did. Please. Because God is working. This is about the glory of Jesus being seen and evidenced amongst us. He's not a performing monkey. He's the savior of the world. The king of kings. So, so what can we learn from this story? What, what's John trying to show? You know, I always describe John, don't I, as the rice pudding gospel. You've, you've got a lovely skin on the top. Well, we've looked at that. We've gone a bit into the, the lovely creamy stuff, you know, and a bit of the jam. But now we're going to get onto the bottom of that enamel pan with that lovely caramelized stuff. What, what's John showing? Hmm, I'm hungry now. What's John showing us here? What, what can we learn in the brief time that we've, we've got left? Well, I think he's doing the same thing that he's done over and over and over again in this gospel. The main thing he's doing is showing us the greatness of Jesus. He's showing us here an astonishing miracle to show us just how wonderful and great and glorious Jesus Christ is. John wants to help us overcome obstacles to seeing Jesus for who he really is. There are obstacles, you see, to the people in Galilee. And he shows us the kind of things that keep people from honoring Jesus for who he truly is. So what, 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 what is that for us? Verse 44 tells us what stood in the way. It is, basically, a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. There's something about being part of Jesus' home, it seems, that hinders faith. Now, you'll turn around to me and you'll say, well, see, that was a problem back then, not a problem today. Because Jesus don't live in Risca. Well, you may think it doesn't apply to us, but the inner sinful impulses that made it hard for his own people to receive him and honor him, those same impulses imply to us today. Things like this. Pride of attachment to somebody special. It's a kind of vicarious sense of importance. The people could say that this great miracle worker, of course, grew up in their town. It makes them want to see him do miracles. So they honor him in that way. 
Why do they want him to do these miracles? Because the more he does, the more their attachment to him feeds their ego. So Jamie Bosch, whisker boy, when he was in the Olympics, you telling me you didn't make much of that? Rusker boy, see? Fast. Gold medalist. Lovely. And if there was a rugby player who played for the Welsh team and was from Rusker, you telling me we wouldn't lord it on them? Of course we would. And you start to see how dangerous this is. They don't see the glory of Jesus. They don't feel the need for his grace. No, no, no. They use him. His power and his fame feeds their pride. They don't honor him for who he is. And that impulse is very much alive today and can affect us and keep us from knowing Jesus for who he really is. We can be so attached to a church building, to a denomination, to a particular musical style or to a person or a, a, a ministry that it can start to feed our ego. And it will seem justifiable because, well, it's Christian. <laughs> and subtly, we begin to want this Christian thing to thrive, not for the glory of Jesus. And when that happens, it becomes harder and harder to see Jesus for who he really is. Please, friends, this is a lovely building. But Jesus doesn't live here. And if the building went tomorrow, Jesus wouldn't stop being king. We can't attach too much importance to buildings or denominations or to versions of the Bible that we particularly like or the particular ministries that we feel we should support, the pride of attachment can rob us of seeing the glory of Jesus. Another thing that keeps us from seeing Jesus' glory might be this, a sense of entitlement. You can imagine them, can't you? If he's from our town, we get first dibs. Or special dibs anyway. That mindset is still with us, creeps into our hearts very easily. If you ever start to feel entitled in yourself to the blessings of Jesus, be careful. Because you're falling away from grace. A sense of deservedness or entitlement will keep us from fully knowing him. And I think this is a real problem in the West. I think our sisters and brothers in the two-thirds world really get this far more than we do. We think that we live in the Christian West and we have a sense of entitlement. People will tell you which church is their church. Never go there. I go to families who want to have a funeral service here. They tell me how their family is associated with this church. And I'll go and ask some people in the church and they've never heard of them. But there's a sense of entitlement. Because great Auntie Mavis's brother's uncle's vet, I haven't finished, Dustman's neighbour, came here to Sunday school one Sunday in 1875. But you get it, don't you? And that can keep you from seeing who Jesus is. Seeing you in his glory. The final thing is, let's just really quickly, I think over-familiarity. I think they really suffered from that in Galilee. Oh, he's one of the boys, man. In fact, they wondered, who does he think he is? Isn't this Joseph's boy? 
We know his man and his brothers. He's one of us, man. Can't be who he claims to be. And there's a danger in all of us as well. That mindset can become so prevalent, we get very over-familiar with things. With the Bible, with Jesus, with Christianity. As Tim challenged us the other Sunday morning, can your Jesus walk on water? I think the truth is, We've become quite sterilized by Jesus and faith. We don't really expect supernatural breakthroughs and power. Please, Lord, please do something wonderful that we cannot explain, that is supernatural, that does shock us, that is mind-blowingly powerful. God forbid that Jesus will become too familiar. We need to guard against this. We need to guard against those three things. The first two, you notice, the pride of attachment and the sense of entitlement, that's minimizing his grace, isn't it? And the third, over-familiarity, well, that minimizes his power. So as I finish this evening, I want you to notice that John wants to help us overcome these blinding impulses, and he wants us to see the grace and the power and the mercy and the might of Jesus and he does that by showing us that Jesus heals the boy. It, it, it's beautiful. Notice the grace of it, would you? How gracious is Jesus here? It's amazing. He heals this child in a very hostile environment. It's an unbelieving atmosphere. The first thing he says to the official when he pleads for his son is, oh, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Jesus does, does not commend the man or the people around him. I think Jesus is pulling his hair out. He's cross at the miracle seeking false faith that abounds in Galilee. And yet in that very context, he heals him. What grace, eh? What grace? That given what you've been up to, and what I've been up to, Jesus is here tonight. What grace. What grace. That given the things you've done in your past, he still died for you, to forgive you, and to welcome you into a secure place in heaven. The grace of it. He gives the gift to a man he's never met before who has associations in some way probably with the court of wicked Herod Antipas. The guy doesn't comment on Jesus' power or personality. He wants, to follow, he wants Jesus to come back with him, come home. So when Jesus decided to heal that little boy, it was all of grace. He wasn't looking at anyone's status or accomplishments was a free, gracious gift. We have seen the glory full of grace and truth. And from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. Hallelujah. If you have the pride of attachment or a sense of entitlement, you won't be able to see this. Finally, John wants us not only to see the grace, but he wants us to see the power. Look at the power of Jesus. The boy's dying, for goodness sake. He's dying. The power of Jesus to heal this guy. 
in, 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 and he does it. How does he do it? With a word. He speaks. He simply says, go, your son will live. That one phrase, everything changes. The physical chemistry of a boy's body changes, and he is made well. Power. The power is seen in that distance was a, wasn't a hindrance. The boy was 15 miles away. I'll tell you this, he could have been 15,000 miles away. Didn't matter. Didn't matter at all. It wouldn't have mattered. When Jesus speaks with authority, there are no spatial limitations to his power. Hallelujah. And the power of his healing is seen in the fact it was immediate. John draws special attention to that. You know, he recovered at one in the afternoon. The father realizes it's the exact time at which Jesus said to him, your son will live. A dying boy healed with a word, over distance, at once. Such is the power of Jesus. What grace, what power, what mercy, what might. We beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten son from the father and from his fullness. We, we, we have all received grace upon grace, upon grace, upon grace, upon grace. Do you see the glory of Jesus? May we see it. May the Lord remove all pride and all entitlement, all binding familiarity and reveal to us the glory of the grace and power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, I pray you see it. Holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. I want to see him. Do you see him? For who he really is? I pray that you do.